This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Happy Easter. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Today is the holiest day on the Christian calendar, the day of Jesus Christ's resurrection, according to Scripture. The day is being celebrated around the world in Christian churches of every denomination. Not least in the monumental church, the faithful believe is the final resting place of Christ's leading apostle where today thousands of the faithful gathered in St. Peter's Square. Mo Rocca in Rome will report our Sunday morning cover story and more. It's the eternal city, home to the Colosseum and the Pantheon and birthplace of the Roman Catholic Church. We'll visit St. Peter's, explore the riches of the Vatican museums, even spend a little time with Pope Francis. Ahead this Easter Sunday morning, Rome. It wasn't built in a day. The top hats we have on tap this morning aren't worn by men. We'll be looking at some bonnets dressing the most fashionable of women. Rita Braver has a look at classic women's headwear, perfectly timed for this day. What if a hat didn't just mean an Easter bonnet? 
come with us to late 19th century Paris. When did you wear a hat? Did you just wear a hat to church in that time? Oh, absolutely not. If you went outdoors, you were wearing a hat. Later on Sunday morning, Parisian painters and the hats that inspired them. We take note as well this morning of Ricky Martin, a singer who's traveled from the Caribbean island of his birth to a high-energy engagement in a glittering desert oasis. Tracy Smith has his story. After years of sold-out world tours, Latin superstar Ricky Martin has a residency in Las Vegas. She's in sensation, kids in the candlelight. Not just for his fans, but for his family. How his father had changed you? There's no more sleeping late. <laughs> What's left of La Vida Loca later this Sunday morning. Easter is a holy day, to be sure. It can also be very sweet. Seth Doan shows us one reason why. There's the challenge of finding the Easter egg. Many of us know that. But for those challenged with making them... And this is one of the 50,000 eggs that we do every day. There are hurdles you would not imagine. Someone will bring you a diamond and say, put it in a chocolate egg? Yes. Nice, nice dress. <laughs> Easter eggs the Italian way, ahead on Sunday morning. Chip Reed will have some questions for Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Steve Hartman has a story of two athletes that's all heart. We'll mark the passing of Dave Letterman's mom and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We're spending much of this Easter Sunday morning visiting Rome, home to one of the holiest sites in all of Christendom. Morocco will be our guide. Whether you're a lover of art, a student of history, or one of the more than one billion Catholics the world over, all roads lead to the Vatican. Vatican City is the smallest independent state in the world, an enclave tucked inside of Rome, just 110 acres in area with fewer than 1,000 residents. But it draws more than 6 million visitors each year to the monumental St. Peter's Square and the magnificent Vatican museums. And at its heart, one of the holiest sites in the world, St. Peter's Basilica. When the new pope's elected, he would leave the Sistine Chapel, say a prayer at the Pauline Chapel, and then walk out here and go to the Central Loggia. And if you, you see the beautiful mosaic up there, that's the words of Jesus, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. New York's Timothy Cardinal Dolan was a 22-year-old seminarian when he first visited St. Peter's. There are certain symbols, there are certain images, especially in the mind of a Catholic, that represent something awesome. And St. Peter's would be one of those. To see this close up, you talk about something that would just shake you. It was great. 
I try to imagine the different people who've walked through here. I imagine the saints, all these great figures that are now up here that once actually walked through the square. St. Peter, says art historian Elizabeth Lev, is at the center of it all, spiritually, architecturally, and literally. The site of St. Peter's Basilica, St. Peter's Square, is all centered around the tomb of St. Peter, which is found 144 meters under that golden globe on the top of Michelangelo's dome. Built on the site where Peter, the apostle and first pope, was crucified upside down, martyred along with other early Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero in 64 AD. Peter said, I'm not worthy to die the same way the master did. Would you crucify me upside down? So when Peter's body was cut down off the cross, he had to be buried immediately. Mm -hmm. They stuck Peter in the trench, they covered him with some dirt, and that was the end of the man that was referred to as the Prince of the Apostles. And does this instantly become a shrine, a place where pilgrims come? Even though that tomb is so inauspicious, this is where the whole story begins. And what a story. The Basilica is a marvel. Started in 1506, it's the work of 12 architects and a roster of Renaissance masters, serving 20 popes over the course of 120 years. What's miraculous, says Elizabeth Lev, is that it all came together so beautifully. Imagine the dome looks like it's hovering above Peter's tomb directly below. And when the pope steps up to his altar underneath Bernini's canopy, Stepping in the footsteps of Peter the Fisherman, he is the Pontifex Maximus, the bridge between heaven and earth. Michelangelo designed the explanation of the papacy in the interior part of the dome. The Dome of St. Peter's would be the crowning glory in the life of artist Michelangelo Buonarroti. And towards the front of the basilica, a much younger Michelangelo's breakthrough work, sculpted from a single piece of marble the Pietà. Pietà is the Latin and the Italian word for compassion, for mercy, for tenderness, a word particularly poignant for our present Pope. So Michelangelo there has the Pietà, in other words, the compassionate, sorrowful Mother Mary holding the body of Jesus as it was taken down from the cross. Now imagine how heavy that is. She there is an extraordinarily strong woman, right? There's a tenderness there, there's a compassion, there's a pietà. But you could almost see a surrender. Only a few years later, Michelangelo would paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, where cardinals meet to elect a new pope, and just one of the treasures of the Vatican museums. The decision in 1780 to open those museums to the general public, regardless of religion, was revolutionary. There is a painting of the man who opened that museum, Pope Pius VI, giving a tour to King Gustav III of Sweden, who they were religiously on the opposite ends of the spectrum. But you see this painting of the two of them walking side by side, standing under the statues. That's what the museums are. They are a platform of dialogue. Because you don't have to be Catholic, you don't have to be Christian to look at the tapestry of the risen Christ and marvel at it. That's what's the, 1780, they open it. I mean to everybody. We have sketches of people coming in there. You see men with big turbans, assuming that they're Muslims. The Vatican museums have a great history of openness. Exactly. Today, the Vatican Museums comprise one of the largest collections in the world, three and a half miles of museum, and the first of its magnitude to have a woman as director, Barbara Yatta. 
When you found out that you'd been appointed the director of the Vatican Museums, what was your reaction? Astonishment, <laughs> absolutely. Caring for these treasures is equal parts art and science. A huge part of the work of the museum is conservation, preservation, and restoration. Almost 100 people in seven different conservatory labs are working permanently in the museum. On projects like the restoration of this oil painting by Raphael in the Hall of Constantine. Well, as a restorer, you have to be humble. You have to accept that what you're working on is much greater and it's much more important than the work you do. Overseeing this restoration, Professor Arnold Nesselrath. What is the genius of Raphael? What he does with the light, how he translates the light into painting. This is, I think, the masterpiece in this room. It's the last we have of Raphael when he dies at the age of 37. And it's also the idea of what we lost. And it makes us understand why the whole of Rome was sad when they heard on Good Friday in 1520 that he died. How did he die? Contemporaries say from too much love. Too much and love? Like he just said, was, was, had too much sex? That's the impression that his biographers give to posterity. He just exhausted himself? That's what they say. He really lived life to the fullest for at least a short time. Have you ever discovered something that really surprised you? Well, we discovered the beans that came from the New World. That's right, beans. Which the workmen who applied the plaster and had fallen into the plaster, when they then took the plaster and uh, smashed it to the wall and uh, smoothed it over, uh, the beans remained in there. Wow, well, that's really, it's nice to know that Americans played such a vital part in the creation of this. Yeah. And today, Americans pay for much of the restoration through the Vatican's Patrons of the Arts program. These works of art belong to the whole world. We only hold them as a custodian, as a steward. They belong to everybody. On the day we were in the Basilica with Cardinal Dolan, it was beautifully illuminated for the feast of the chair of Peter. You look up and see that magnificent encrusted with bronze and iron chair. The chair represents unity and teaching. And so the successor of Peter, the Pope, his chair there. All the threads and the roads of the Vatican lead back to the presence of Peter. We are perhaps the most beautiful outgrowth and offshoot, at least in art and architecture, that comes from that seed that was planted 2,000 years ago. Geographically, Vatican City may be small, but just like Bernini's colonnade in St. Peter's Square, its arms open wide to the world. The art of the bonnet, just ahead. On this day of Easter bonnets, a look now at some top hats, an exhibit of works by some of the greatest of the French Impressionists. Rita Braver is our guide. In your Easter bonnet, with all the frills upon it, You'll be the grandest lady 
in the Easter parade. Bing Crosby may have sung about Easter bonnets, but Edgar Degas painted them. Degas is probably best known for his dancer scenes, to some extent his racetrack works, but there's never been an exhibition before on the theme of millinery, so this is the first exhibition to do that. How many works altogether? We have about 115 uh, in the show. Simon Kelly co-curated the exhibit, now on view at the St. Louis Art Museum, and headed to San Francisco in June. He says that Degas, born in 1834 and considered a leading French Impressionist, came from a wealthy background. His father a Parisian banker, his mother from a prominent New Orleans family. He's fascinated by a Parisian modern life. And, you know, milliners are a central part of that. You know, there are a thousand milliners in Paris in, in 1900. And so Edgar Degas made frequent trips to observe the women who shopped and worked in the hat-making district near his Montmartre studio. The center of the work is a milliner here who's looking at this hat. If you look carefully, she's got a tiny little hat oh, pin. Yes, sticking out um, of her mouth. I hadn't even noticed right, that. Right, exactly, yeah. She's a key figure, but the hats are kind of the stars as well. And hats are stars here, too. We did want to make some connections between the hats themselves and the, uh, and the paintings. The parallels are unmistakable. And as the exhibit shows, Degas was not the only Impressionist painter to be intrigued by hats both women's and men's. Their works by his friends and contemporaries, including Edward Manet, Bert Morisot, Auguste Renoir. And if we walk along here, we can see this kind of flat hat, and there's a painting with a yes. young girl wearing a very similar hat. Yes. Shannon Meyer, senior curator of the Missouri History Museum, says that hats tell us a lot about turn-of-the-century history, not only in Paris, but also here in the States as well, where Paris styles were often copied. This was a time of growing wealth. There was this emerging middle class, and the hats were just kind of the icing on the cake of your outfit, and so that was just a great way to show off how much money you had. When did you wear a hat? Did you just wear a hat to church in that time? Oh, absolutely not. If you went outdoors, you were wearing a hat. And she says the painters were, in a sense, taking their hats off to the great milliners of the era. Decorating a hat was actually an art form, and you had to have a certain level of taste and decorum in order to create this beautiful thing and know how to work with fabrics and materials to make something beautiful. And artists appreciate other artists. Degas died in 1917. A hundred years later, of course, hats have largely gone out of fashion. Our entire lifestyle changed. We are more mobile. We travel a lot more. Um, we are outside. Hard to travel with your hats? It's hard to travel with hats. And then as well with kind of the sexual revolution and women's liberations movement, women didn't want to be confined. So with all of these changes, it just kind of fell by the wayside. But at least once a year, on this special day, it's fun to break out the old chapeau. Write a sonnet about your Easter bonnet and of the girl I'm taking to the Easter parade.
coming up from the pages of Playboy to a palace in Rome, the remarkable journey of Rita Genrette. Marcello, come here. Hurry up. It's Sunday morning on CBS. Here again is Mo Rocco. That was Swedish bombshell Anita Ekberg cavorting in Rome's Trevi Fountain in Fellini's La Dolce Vita. Turns out the good life is still very much in existence here, and we found it. Just over a half mile from the Trevi Fountain, in the center of Rome, is Villa Aurora. The villa was built in the year 1570. Good morning, Princess Rita. And is currently presided over by a princess. Your full name is? Rita Boncompagni Ludovisi, Principessa di Pimbino. But I can just call you Princess Rita. You can just call me Rita. <laughs> okay. So there's really not any part of this villa that a master didn't have a hand in. True. Around every corner here, there's something astonishing. Now you're going to see something very special. Um, this is the only ceiling painting ever done by Caravaggio. It is not a fresco. It's an oil on plaster painting. This is Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto. And Caravaggio painted this when he was 23 in 1597. He put his own face and his own body on each one of these figures. And this is uh, Caesar Augustus from 2 AD. And I told my husband, if we had this in New York, it'd be in the middle of our living room. It's been here for centuries, just sitting there. And out in the garden, in all his glory. This is a Michelangelo. It was behind a tree when we were uh, beginning to restore the house. And then the tree died, and the fig leaf came off. And now I can see why it was behind a tree. I'm pretty sure we can't show this on CBS. Probably not. If the Michelangelo is a bit scandalous, well, the princess is no stranger to scandal. Today, you're Princess Rita. You became famous as Rita Genret. Yes. Princess Rita grew up as Rita Carpenter on a ranch in Texas. An interest in politics took her to Washington in her early 20s. And right off the bat, she fell in love with her soon-to-be husband. My first day there, I met John, my John ex-husband, John Genret. John Genrett was a Democratic congressman from South Carolina, but not for long. In 1980, the FBI ran a sting operation called Abscam. Members of Congress were enticed with bribes from someone dressed up as an Arab sheikh. Congressman Genrett could be heard on surveillance tape seeming to welcome a $50,000 payoff. I've got larceny in my blood. I've taken a goddamn minute. Okay. I mean, I stood by him during the trial and all of that, which was tremendously painful. It was shocking, actually. But the shocks were only beginning. Saying she needed the money, the congressman's wife displayed more than her independence. I remember 1981 and the sensation. The brouhaha. <laughs> your appearance in Playboy. Yes, I know. So you know that people are saying that your husband sold his public trust and now you're selling sex. How do you mm. respond? Well, that's in the eye of the beholder, in my opinion. That's their problem. That's not mine. And they were very demure photos. I mean, it wasn't explicit. They were very covered and such as that. But what I really regret is my dad called me and he said, you didn't pose for Playboy, did you? And I said, well, it's not town and country, Daddy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a... 
Adding to the scandal, she claimed in the Playboy article that she and her husband once had their own private filibuster on the hallowed grounds of Congress. We did not make love on the Capitol steps. It, we had just gotten married, and um, they were in session, and he called me to have dinner with him in the congressional dining room, and then we just went over behind the columns, and, and he kissed me, and it was a passionate moment, but it was not, uh, we did not make love on the Capitol steps. We did not. John Jenrett went to jail, and the couple divorced. Along the way, Rita Jenrett tried out enough careers to last most people a lifetime. Baby, do you love me? A little singing. Baby, do you miss me? A little acting. I don't know, Joe. I really don't feel good about this. Then she landed in Manhattan real estate meeting Donald Trump when she helped broker his purchase of the General Motors building in 1998. He was very friendly, very congenial. He took a magazine and put it up on his desk, and he said, you know, I'm worth $3.5 billion. And so I thought, what do I say? You know, what, right. do, I what say? do you say to that? I said, how lovely for you. I didn't know what to say. I said, how wonderful. <laughs> Real estate would lead her to Italy five years later when an Italian prince wanted to build a hotel. She flashed back to a childhood trip to Rome and that world-famous Trevi Fountain. So it was 51 years ago 51 that you came? 51 years ago. I came here when I was 16, my sister, and uh, I made a wish. I fell in love with Rome and I said, I hope that I move to Rome and I marry an Italian and live there forever. The prince she came to see was Prince Niccolò Boncompagni Ludovici, a direct descendant of Pope Gregory XIII. Tell me about the moment you laid eyes on Rita. Oh, <laughs> that's a moment I will never forget. I was shocked, but in a positive way. I was breathless. It was a fairy tale come true. And just like in the fairy tales, eight years ago, the princess married the prince yeah. and moved into his castle. What do you use this room for now? We use it, sometimes I do my yoga here. <laughs> and I, and I, yeah, I do. And I look up at it and I find new things all the time. Please come in. The villa is listed as a national monument, hence the occasional tour. Stand just beneath this Art of the Grotesque. You see that turn, 360 degrees. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Isn't that astonishing? Oh. Oh, my gosh. He turned <laughs> Yes, the Italians know something about the good life. And turning into a princess doesn't hurt. And you're just a picture of happiness. Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank God. I can only thank God. Me too. Yes, I do. Me too. Yeah, kiss him again. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, do me a favor. Please welcome my mom. Here we go. Ahead. Remembering Dave's mom. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. From a magical place not found on any map, it's The Late Show with David Letterman. It happened this past week. Sad news for all of us here at CBS and for countless Late Show TV fans as well. For we learned of the death on Tuesday of Dorothy Mengering, better known as Dave Letterman's mom. 
Here. Ladies and gentlemen, do me a favor. Please welcome my mom. Here we go. A lifelong resident of Indiana, Dave's mom brought a bit of understated humor to her every appearance on her son's show. Oh, and I have a question. From David. Okay. I uh, I jotted it down. He said, "Is there anything you or your husband can do about the speed limit in Connecticut?" <laughs> For some reason, I particularly remember this bullhorn at the Rockefeller Center window moment in 1986, when Dave and I were both still at NBC. Attention, New York. Attention, New York. My name is Jane Pauley. Jane Pauley. I'm being held prisoner by Willard Scott. Yeah. He's not wearing pants. <laughs> In the eyes of her fans, Dave's mom never wore out her welcome. Dorothy Mengering was 95. We also learned of the death on Thursday of Robert Taylor. Who's he? Well, Taylor was a computer scientist who back in the 1960s and 70s played a key role in developing such innovations as the Internet, the PC, and this, the mouse. Robert Taylor was 85. Still to come... We do lots of different sizes of eggs. The art of the Easter egg. When in Rome, you run on espresso. You gotta try the pizza. Mm. And nothing beats the gelato. Wait a minute, it's Easter Sunday. Here's Seth Doan. Watch out, Santa. This is the Easter Bunny's version of the North Pole. In central Italy near Perugia, they're churning out chocolate eggs by the thousands of dozens. We work uh, 24 hours a day. 24 hours we, a day on eggs? Yeah, and we produce around uh, 50,000 uh, eggs per day. Francois Pontoy is the director of this chocolate factory, Perugina, best known for its little hazelnut bocce. But leading up to Easter, it's all about eggs, though the joy of Easter morning wears a little thin month after month. You're thinking about Easter back in October? Yes, because we need to produce a lot. We produce around 4 million Easter eggs in this factory. What is the surprise? They're known for their chocolate. The little gift. Keychain. But the surprise gift in this plastic container is a vital ingredient. We ensure that all Easter eggs contain at least one surprise. So cameras monitor to make sure each egg gets one. We want just people to be happy. Chocolate Easter eggs are a big deal in Italy, a good enough gift for a pope. Perugina exports its eggs to America and around the world. Oh, wow. But at Cecilia and Paul in Perugia, their artisanal creations are so fragile they cannot be shipped. They sell for up to $45 a piece. We do lots of different sizes of eggs. Milk chocolate, white chocolate, very dark chocolate. There's great attention to detail here. Some are shaded with coats of chocolate and cocoa butter. After two and a half decades of doing this, most of it comes naturally. It's 25 years I have to, to change present inside. 
a little orange packet holds this year's surprise gift. Here go the surprises. But sometimes it's Paul and Cecilia DeBont who are surprised by the special requests. What are the craziest things people have asked you to put inside a chocolate egg? Um, a shoe. A shoe? <laughs> yes, a shoe. Once it was a diamond, they had to be pretty careful with that egg. From the artisanal to the abstract. This is opera legend Maria Callas, Andy Warhol style. Federico Cari is an artist who uses coated chocolate eggs as his canvas. The special things is that we don't put the um, surprise inside. No surprise? No, because for us, the eggs is the surprise. He's challenging tradition on all levels. At his Bampiani Pasticceria in Rome, this year's theme is music, a tribute in chocolate egg to Grace Jones and her wild hats, David Bowie, and Patti Smith's song, Wild Leaves. Wild, wild leaves. Cari's eggs can take hours or days to complete and sell for more than $400. You spend so much time and then people crack these open? Yeah, this for me is, that, that can break my heart every time. <laughs> Perfetto, it's finalmente. It's perfect. It's all the more impressive when you try to do it yourself. Oh, this is not easy. All right. We got the chance to make our own chocolate egg at a class offered by Perugina. We'll spare you the process, but luckily they were expecting us. The perfect finishing touch here. I'm going to ask mom to listen to his heart. Heart to heart. There it is. That's next. Two athletes bound together by one profound heart to heart is the story our Steve Hartman has to tell. When pro football player Conrad Ruland was hospitalized with a brain aneurysm last November, he took it as a sign. He texted his mom from the hospital. God had something big in store for me. I can't wait to see where his will takes me. But a few hours later, the aneurysm ruptured. I couldn't leave him. His parents, Mary and Ralph, raced to his side. I had my right ear on his chest and talked to him and laid that all day and listened to his heartbeat all day long. But her son was brain dead at 29. If this was God's plan... It sure felt like an awful one. And then when we left, I said, whoever gets his heart better deserve it. I had a massive heart attack. The one paramedic, he had the paddles in his hand. Come on, we're losing him, we're losing him. You heard that? Yeah, and then I was gone. This is Rod Carew. Even if you're barely a baseball fan, you know the name. These are all for winning the batting titles. Long before that massive heart attack landed him on the transplant list, this Hall of Famer played for the Minnesota Twins and California Angels. Along the way, he earned a reputation for being great with kids, including one wide-eyed boy named Conrad Ruland. He gets in the car, big eyes and everything. He's about 11, maybe 12. And he's saying, Mom, Mommy, I met Rod Crew today. You know, he's a pro athlete. I want to be a pro athlete. And he, the rest of the day, that's all he talked about was meeting Rod Carew. They only met that once, but these two professional athletes are now inseparable because a few months before he died, 
Conrad checked the organ donor box on his driver's license application. Welcome. And by sheer coincidence, the man who received his heart was none other than Rod Carew. It's good to see you. You're a part of our family now? Yes. Forever. Yes. The two families got together recently at the Rulins house in Orange County, California. I'm going to ask mom to listen to his heart and tell me how beautiful it sounds. That was really cathartic for me to, to be able to hear it again. Every heartbeat is unique. There it is. And she said this one was unquestionably Conrad's. I've got it memorized. The two families are now planning to team up to use Rod and Conrad's celebrity to promote the American Heart Association and to encourage many more people to become organ donors. Whatever, if we can save a life. And that means including Conrad now. You know, he's, wherever I go, he's going to be there. When Conrad sent his mom that text, saying he felt like God still had a plan for him, he obviously thought he would go on living. And now we know. He will. Still to come, backstage with Ricky Martin. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Hit songs like La Copa de la Vida made Ricky Martin a superstar. And to hear him tell it, openness about his life has made him a very happy man. With Tracy Smith, we take note. This is what happens when Las Vegas, a place not known for subtlety, meets Ricky Martin. She's in the new sensation, new kicks in the candlelight. The artist just, just walks on stage ready for fire. Me as an artist, I don't, I, I don't settle for little things. Martin's joining a rarefied club, stars big enough to have a Las Vegas residency. From now until September, he'll be playing Park Theater at Monte Carlo, more intimate than a stadium, but still intimidating. 5,200 seats every night. Does that worry you, <laughs> filling those seats? Oh, of course you don't. I mean, you don't, want to, you don't want to sing to an empty house. What draws people in, Martin says, is 90 minutes of pure adrenaline. The Vegas audience is tough? Yes, I think it's a tough audience, yeah. But you like that? Yeah, you know, you have those high rollers. All of a sudden, if they're not having a good time, they go straight to their phone. And I'm like, hey, hey, <laughs> come here, come back. Those high rollers expect a lot of flash. And Ricky Martin doesn't want to disappoint. So at a rehearsal a few weeks ago in Los Angeles, Director Jamie King. Two minutes and 30 seconds. Went over every detail down to the last thread. So we can find a place for you to take that jacket off, which is what we should show next. This I mean, one. powerful. 
moment. King's worked with Madonna, Prince, and Michael Jackson, and ranks Ricky Martin right up there with them. When he gets on stage, I mean, you know when he gets on stage, it's like you're captivated, you're moved to just watch this man. He's so fantastic. After all, Martin spent most of his life on stage. He was born Enrique Martin IV in San Juan, Puerto Rico on Christmas Eve in 1971. Early on, it was clear little Ricky loved the spotlight. This all began with a six-year-old and a wooden spoon. I would grab a, a wooden spoon and I would perform in the balcony of my grandparents' house. And I, I always needed to perform some way, somehow. You needed it. I needed it. I needed it. I, actually, I became an altar boy to be on stage. <laughs> <laughs> By age seven, the Catholic schoolboy was doing TV commercials. Five years later, he joined the Latin boy band Menudo. To teenage girls, they were the Beatles. To Martin, they were the Marines. It was military, but I would do it all over again. You're here, you're following instructions. So this is what you're going to sing, this is what you're going to wear, this is what you're going to say in interviews. And when you've had it, you leave. You had it after about, what? Five years. Five years. I was in the band for five years, yeah. I needed more. He acted on Broadway and TV and set out to find his own musical sound. Ricky Martin's made 15 albums in Spanish and English, won five Grammy Awards, and captivated audiences all over the world. Do you still have that same feeling that you got when you were six years old? I'm addicted, yes. I am, I am hooked on this. It forces me to, uh, to analyze my emotions. Uh, because that's that's what the audience wants. The audience wants you to be transparent, to be real, to be honest. And even when I had to hide things about my persona on stage, I wasn't. On stage, I was just completely open. Off stage, Martin had secrets. But when his twin sons, Matteo and Valentino, were born to a surrogate mother in 2008, he had an epiphany. If I am not honest, with my kids, what am I teaching them? I'm, I'm teaching them to lie. So after years of denying his sexuality during interviews, Martin posted this message to his fan website in 2010. I am proud to say that I am a fortunate homosexual man. I am very blessed to be who I am. It was, wow, I struggled so much. It was extremely painful. And when I finally sent that tweet and I, share with the world my sexual orientation, I was like, oh my God, this is it? Bah, perfect, perfection. Why do you think you didn't do it sooner? Because I was afraid, I was afraid. I was, of? I was, well, I was afraid of rejection, because unfortunately, you know, first of all, for many years, everyone, a lot of people told me that my feelings were evil. What you're feeling is not godly. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a good person. If I'm feeling this, I'm not a good person. Not more of that. I'm a good person. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with me. No. No, enough. Not more of that.
and I've been the happiest man ever since. <laughs> and if there's one thing 45-year-old Ricky Martin sings about, it's living a happy, if sometimes crazy, life. Do you still now, as a father of two, do you still have La Vida Loca in some sense? No, definitely the decisions that, I've, that I make today, even for my career, are based on the well-being of my children. How has fatherhood changed you? Everything changes. It's, it's not about you anymore. There's no more sleeping late. <laughs> and I'm only starting. I want a big family. I like the noise of children running around the house. I want daddy's little girl now. Let's see what happens. Girl next? I think so, yeah, of course. We have to have a balance in the house. Are you making plans for that? We're making plans. We're making plans. Now it's we. We are making plans. We is Ricky and his Syrian-born fiancé, artist Jawan Yosef. They met on Instagram. And we talked for like six months about art and about life. Uh, nothing sexy. And then I saw him. And when you saw him? Love at first sight. <laughs> Was it? Boom. That's it. This is the, it's him. And there's a big day coming up, a wedding. Well, we don't know the day yet. <laughs> we don't know the day, but yes, we, I mean, we're engaged and, and, uh, and we're having a really good time. But yeah, m maybe this year. It's, I want a big wedding. I want a three-day celebration, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Will you sing at your wedding? No, I want people singing for me in my wedding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. Woke up right here in Vegas. <laughs> in a hotel. When he considers his life, sometimes he tries to imagine what Ricky Martin the boy would think of Ricky Martin the man. So do you think your six-year-old self would be proud of the Ricky Martin that is today? Now he is proud. He wasn't that proud a few years ago, a few years, you know, maybe 10 years ago. But now he'd be very proud. In my family, they call me Kiki. My friends call me Kiki. So he would be saying, well done, older Kiki. <laughs> Morocco. Por qué escogió su santidad el nombre Francis? with His Holiness Pope Francis, next. Before he became the head of the Roman Catholic Church, Jorge Bergoglio was a cardinal from Argentina. But the Pope's spiritual roots may very well be traced to the hills of Umbria and the hometown of the saint whose name he chose for his own. Altissimo, omnipotente, bon signore, tue son le laude, la gloria e l'onore. A song of praise to brother, son, and sister moon, and the beauty of all God's creation. These are the words of St. Francis of Assisi. It's very important because it's a very beautiful hymn and because it's the oldest text in Italian. The so, oldest text in Italian. So it's the starting point of Italian literature. Franciscan brother Carlo Botero showed us an early copy of The Canticle of Creation, 
composed almost 800 years ago and believed to be the first poem ever written in Italian. Francis was blind and in great pain when he wrote it, and yet... He remembered the, all the beautiful things he saw and was still happy that people can see. If Italy's patron saint and the village he hailed from are of particular interest these days, it's because of a certain Jesuit cleric in Rome who chose his name, Pope Francis. I think he's the best Franciscan now living, Pope Francis. It's not easy to live according to his example. So he brings a lot of joy and a lot of pressure. Yes, yes. The remarkable story of the saint who inspired a pope is told on the walls of the Basilica of St. Francis in Assisi, in frescoes attributed to the Renaissance master Giotto. He was rich, he was spoiled, he had everything he could possibly desire, inside he had nothing. Franciscan father Martin Bresky. So one day, around the age of 25, he made a decision I'm giving everything away, including my will. I'm giving it all to the Lord. The son of a wealthy merchant, Francis heard God call him to rebuild my church for it is in ruins and dedicated his life to living just as Jesus had. He was scorned, he was ridiculed, he was spat upon. People probably thought he was nuts. Certainly, very nuts. Giving away everything he had to live a life of stark poverty, whoa. This is a, a place of calm, of peace. Throughout his life, says Brother Alessandro Brustenghi, Francis sought communion with God in this hermitage outside of Assisi. Staying here and praying here inside caves, among woods, with birds, with animals, he understood that God is the creator of everybody and everything. Eventually, Francis gained disciples and in this humble chapel founded his own religious order, dedicated to universal brotherhood. Jesus taught us that if you serve the other people, you discover peace, you will discover happiness. And that's a message that's central to the mission of Pope Francis, says New York's Timothy Cardinal Dolan. He stood out for his love for the poor, the simplicity and sincerity of his life, the priority that he put upon humility, and all of those are Franciscan virtues. So when he said, I will be called Francis, I said, wow, how beautiful. Cardinal Dolan remembers well the first time he met the future pope in 2013. I feel this tap on my back and I turn around and he said, I'm Jorge Bergoglio from Buenos Aires. I think you're Timothy Dolan from New York and I've wanted to meet you. And I thought right away, I like this guy. <laughs> it's the pope! And Cardinal Dolan is not alone. Here's how he describes the so-called Francis effect. The number of people that will come up to me as I'm walking the streets in New York and say, hey, we like this guy, Francis. I'm kind of, I haven't been to church in a while, but I'm taking a second look, okay? The 266th Pope is the first from Latin America, and it may surprise you, the first to choose the name Francis. Was choosing the name Francis seen by some as radical? 
yes, it also shows that he wants to be a kind of uh, pope outside of the box, outside of the, off the throne, if you will. That can be very appealing, it can be very exciting. The concern of some would be that it's disruptive, that it's, that it's destabilizing. Francis X. Rocca reports on the Vatican for the Wall Street Journal. And yes, he's my brother. You described him as the de facto global leader of the left. What do you mean? He's been very, very clear he has a certain agenda in the, in the political and economic areas. I mean, on climate change, he's grabbed that in a very, very, very aggressive way. Certainly, he's been scathing in his criticisms of the global financial system, of capitalism really in general. The Pope basically favors open borders, uh, not only for refugees, but also for economic migrants. Although globally, the Pope is very popular, among conservative Catholics in America, Francis has been more controversial. Many believe he's blurred the lines around traditional church teachings. You bet there are conservatives that are unhappy with Pope Francis. There are also some liberals that wish that he would move much more uh, radically and expeditiously in some of the reforms. So you're going to get it from, from both sides. I think he's, he's aware of that. I'm excited to see this. But for 17-year-old Zuleika Reimer of the Academy of Mount St. Ursula in New York's Bronx neighborhood, Pope Francis is an inspiration. Wonderful. That is so striking, so beautiful. It so clearly comes from you. She painted this portrait of St. Francis for us to present to the Pope. How do you hope the Holy Father reacts to this? I hope he, he looks at it and just like admires it and maybe like say like, wow, someone actually made this and just basically cherish it. And then the day we've been waiting for, the Pope's Wednesday audience in St. Peter's Square. And I had the privilege of meeting His Holiness and presenting him with Zuleika's gift. Your Holiness, St. Francis of Assisi, Zuleika, and as the Pope admired her portrait of his namesake, I asked him why he chose the name Francis. And then he left us with a request of his own. And what more beautiful prayer to end on than the one from St. Francis. Altissimo, onnipotente, bon signore, tue son le laude, la gloria e l'onore, et onne benedizione. We love this place, and this is like all the places down on the water. Just ahead, a timeout with Senator Elizabeth Warren. Time now for a round of questions and answers with Elizabeth Warren, the senior senator from Massachusetts. Our Chip Reed found her at a favorite spot. 
We love this place, and this is like all the places down on the water, but are usually only there in the summer. This when Senator Elizabeth Warren is home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there's a good chance you'll find her here at the Summer Shack. It's like Cheers. Everybody knows your name. Which is also a Boston place. That's right, exactly. Except, and there's Jasper. Look who's here. How are you, dear? The staff at this New England seafood joint have known her for years. So she hasn't let being a senator go to her head. She's just a local girl. <laughs> you should give back the money that you took while this scam was going on. But this is the Elizabeth Warren most of us know. You make it clear that Wall Street won't change until we make it change. A fierce critic of Wall Street, a senator with a message you've probably heard before. The system is rigged. That's how a rigged system works. The game is rigged against hardworking people. The game is rigged. You've been talking about this middle class theme, the system is rigged for a long time. Yeah. Do you sound like a broken record? <laughs> you know, this, I admit, it truly is my life's work. And her life story. In 1960s Oklahoma, Warren's mother supported the family on a minimum wage job at Sears. A higher minimum wage saved my family. A low minimum wage today is dragging families who work sometimes three jobs and still can't support a family. That's not right. And it's not on the heads of the families who work. It's on the heads of politicians in Washington who decide that corporate interests are vastly more important than those of working people. That gets you very emotional. Yes, it does. Is it does. fair to say it gets you angry? Yes, it does. And it gets me in the fight. And it's why I say this fight is our fight. So you may get a lot of investment. Which is also the title of her latest book, Out Tuesday, on what she calls the disappearing middle class. And make no mistake, for this 67-year-old grandmother of three, it is personal. This is the best way I know to fight for their future. Are they going to be better off than your generation? <sighs> the odds are not in their favor. When I grew up in America, the chances that a kid would do better than her parents were better than 90%. Today, the chances that a kid is going to do better than her parents or less than a coin toss. For inspiration, you may be surprised to learn Warren looks to our 26th president, a Republican whose trust-busting policies toward corporate America she thinks reflect her own. I'm a huge Teddy Roosevelt fan. And do you know why? He said, we've got to get rid of those giant corporations. We've got to break them up. And the reason for doing that is he said they exercise too much political power. And we can't have that in a democracy. Do you want to do what Teddy did? I do. We know that top advisor to the president has been fired because of his connection to the Russian government. Right now, that small wonder, her focus is on our 45th president. We learned the former Harvard law professor has been studying him for some time. Actually, I watched The Apprentice for a couple of seasons. Did you really? Yeah, I really did. What did you think of that guy who was the host? It was an interesting show, the first season. By the second season, I kind of got tired of it. It's sort of the same old shtick. Tired of him? Yeah, he was the shtick. <laughs> I ask leave of the Senate to continue my remarks. Is there objection? Objection. Shtick may have been what some of her GOP Senate colleagues thought in February. The senator will take her seat. Republicans voted to silence Warren for impugning the character of Trump's attorney general nominee, Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. She was warned. She was given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted.
Warren was reading a 1986 letter from the widow of Martin Luther King Jr. that criticized Sessions. Once silenced, she kept right on reading outside the Senate chamber. Mr. Sessions sought to punish older black civil rights activists. Do you think there was some sexism involved here? I think what was really going on is people knew there's a problem with having Jeff Sessions as Attorney Not General sexism. of the United States. Do you For think me, they treated about, male senators differently than you? All I can say is the next day, four men stood up and read exactly the same letter. And they all got to finish. Look at this! Her persistence in opposing the new administration at almost every turn has made Elizabeth Warren both a polarizing figure and a progressive favorite. You've been described as, quote, the de facto leader of the Trump resistance. Are you comfortable with that? Look, if it works, what I want to do is I want to have every person in this country lift their voices and be heard. But if you're the de facto leader of the Trump resistance, doesn't it make logical sense for you to be the person who runs against him in 2020? This isn't about the election in four years. This is about what happens Are this you thinking week. about it? No. You're not. I'm, I'm running for re-election here in Massachusetts. I want to stay in the Senate. That could be a challenge. A poll earlier this year shows fewer than half of her constituents say she deserves another term. Are you confident you're going to win re-election? Oh, I think I probably will. Will it end your political career if you don't? <laughs> for me, this is about the work. I didn't get into this because I thought, wow, I would get to be a senator. I got into this because I thought if I'm a senator, I can fight harder and better and more effectively for people who are just busting their tails every day, for people who are up against a system that is tilted against them. We're going to do the James Lipton inside the actor's studio part of this okay. interview now. <laughs> I am not going to ask you for your favorite curse word. Actually, I am. Do you have a favorite curse word? Poop. Poop? <laughs> oh, uh that, that's a goody two-shoes uh, no, favorite not. curse word no, if I ever heard one. Are you kidding? Have you ever seen a woman like me look you straight in the face <laughs> after you finish some long explanation of something and then just said, poop? <laughs> Try it. Have you said that on the Senate floor? <laughs> no. No, but that day could be coming. It could be. Who knows? I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.